In reading our text this morning, this comes from the second chapter of the book of Genesis. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. This is the story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So about a month, month and a half ago, the pastors were all sitting around and trying to decide who was going to preach which Sunday this summer. We came to Father's Day, and I thought to myself, I've been a father for about 16 months. Probably makes me an expert. (laughs) So I'll take it. Many of you have had the pleasure, the joy of meeting my son, Oliver. He is 17 months old now, as of yesterday. And he has spent the last week enjoying every drop of what VBS has had to offer him. Those of you that know him well know that he is everywhere all the time. He's at a stage, though, where his mother and I are giving him more and more freedom. We give him freedom in exploring the house, freedom in exploring the yard, and freedom in playing with the things he finds there. And he loves this freedom. He loves to get into the cabinets. He dumps the Tupperware all over the floors. He plays in the yard. He slaps the dogs. He takes the balls from the dogs. He digs in the dirt. He waters the plants. He does everything that he possibly can, and he loves every moment of it, making the messes, getting into everything that he possibly can, and enjoying the freedom that his mother and I give him. And Kylie and I, we love to watch him do these things. We love the curiosity that he shows, the way that his face lights up when he discovers something new. And he's at this stage where there's a new discovery almost every single day. Whether it's a new word or a new gesture or a new food or a new way to make Kylie and I jump up and save him from some new precarious situation. Lots of new stuff. In fact, a few days ago we were out in the backyard and Uh, We were playing fetch with the dogs, and Oliver was playing with the garden hose, and his mom and I were talking, sitting out in the yard, and we both look up and realize that Oliver has managed to climb up onto one of the patio chairs on our concrete patio, and this isn't enough. He's trying to get up on the table at this point. Kylie and I, because we are experts, realize this probably was not the best thing for Oliver to be doing, because he is still 16 months old, 17 months old, And very clumsy. What Kylie and I are learning together is that Oliver's complete freedom is probably actually a recipe for disaster. While we want to see him free to do as he wishes and to be as he wishes, there is a necessity for some boundaries to be in place. We don't think that it's probably the healthiest thing in the world for Oliver to be able to climb the stairs unsupervised. It's probably not a good idea to let him play with keys anywhere near an outlet. Slapping the dogs is not going to be okay. 
These are boundaries for Oliver, but Kylie and I are learning that these are boundaries for us as well. We've had to change the way that we behave, the way that we put things away, the way that we pay attention to things in our house. All three of us are learning about these boundaries together. And it's not the easiest thing to learn. In fact, we're learning how, we're having to learn how to set boundaries that Oliver even recognizes as boundaries. Teaching a toddler what it means to say no is pretty hard. And I do think that Oliver gets the gist of the word no, but teaching him to actually listen to it is a whole nother ballgame. As an example, here is our uh, bedtime routine every night. After dinner, we give Oliver bath because he tends to rub chicken curry on the back of his head. Just the back for some reason. I don't know why. So we give him a bath, and then we put him in his PJs, and all three of us lay down in mom and dad's bed. And we start to horse around, maybe, or we read a book. And when it's time to calm down, we say our prayers, and Kylie begins to nurse Oliver. And it is definitely one of my favorite parts of every day. I get to watch my wife lovingly nurse my son, caress his body close to hers, and I get to watch as he looks into her eyes and caresses her face and reaches back and slaps her (laughs) every night for the last few weeks, every night. And sometimes he wants me to join in the fun, so he'll turn to me and slap me in the midst of the nursing. We have tried so many different ways to get this behavior to stop. We've said no, we've held his arm, we've put him in timeout, we've tried so many different things, and yet nothing changes. It's the same thing every night, and he finds so much joy into it. Joy in it. And so here's my expert parenting moment. A few nights ago, just as Oliver decides that he wants me to join in the fun, and he reaches over and he slaps me in the face, as fast as I can, I reach over and I bop him on the head. And I hope that this teaches him that this is an unpleasant thing to happen. And Oliver's face goes into this face of alarm and confusion and then just bursts into pure joy. (laughs) It seems I have just taught him a new game. I am an expert. And so Kylie and I are trying to teach Oliver about these boundaries. We even find ourselves placing arbitrary boundaries on Oliver that really have no meaning because we just want him to get the point that boundaries exist. And again, the reason that we spend so much time and effort on these boundaries is for the sake of Oliver's freedom. That as Oliver's freedom grows and grows and grows, we want him to know that there are still certain things that he probably shouldn't do. There are still certain places that he probably shouldn't go. And so we turn again to our text for this morning. I want to reread a quote to you that Daryl read last week from a Hebrew scripture scholar, Walter Brueggemann. In his commentary on this text, on the text of Genesis 2 and 3, Walter Brueggemann says that no text in Genesis, or likely the entire Bible, has been more used interpreted, and misunderstood than this text. This applies to popular theology as well as to the doctrine of the church. 
The text has received an overlay of messages that the first and most important task of interpretation is to distinguish between the statement of the text and the superstructure that we have laid upon it. So the superstructure of this text, the way that we have traditionally used this text is to explain the origin of evil and sin and death in the world that we live in. Various interpretations along these lines come up with a number of strange conclusions about our world. You're probably familiar with a number of them. For instance, evil is introduced in our world through God's counterpart played in this episode by a snake. He tempts humanity into sin and man and woman fall from immortality. And another, perhaps, probably definitely even more damaging interpretation of this story is that woman is at fault for bringing evil and death into this world because it's Eve that first tastes the fruit. What these interpretations fail to realize is that in playing this blame game, they fall into the same trap that the main characters do. Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames a talking snake. They fail to see the bigger picture. Instead, they are overwhelmed by their own guilt and shame and the culpability of the other. Dinah will talk more about the actual eating of the fruits and the consequences of that eating in a couple of weeks, but I bring it up to you this morning to say that this story is not about that. This isn't an origin story. And in fact, when Paul uses this text to talk later in his letters, he's not lamenting the state of the world and he's not offering an analysis of how the world has come to be in the mess that it's in. Instead, Paul uses this as a foundation from which to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim that the God that gives life, even in the midst of dirtiness of life, continues to give life. Brueggemann even says that this text is not a reflection on death, but on troubled, anxiety-ridden life. That is a greater problem than death, both in our own context and in the world of this narrative. This narrative certainly does offer a commentary on sin and death. But this isn't the origin story. This is a story that says that sin and death happen in this life that were given to us by our God. In all places and at all times, sin may be crouching outside the door. But while each of us are susceptible to this, we also have a freedom to choose our own path. And whichever path that we do choose, whatever the consequences of the choice that we make, this God is still with us. This God is still breathing life into us. Brueggemann breaks this story, the text of Genesis 2 and 3, into four scenes. The first scene, which is what we're primarily dealing with today, is the setting of man in the garden. The second scene is that of creating for the man a suitable helper. Third comes the disruption of the order in the garden. And finally, in the fourth scene, is spelled out the consequences of this disruption. Thus, says Brueggemann, the garden of scene one exists for community in scene two. When the community is violated in scene three, the goodness of the garden is lost in scene four. This is the flow of the narrative that we're working on. 
I'll read our text again so we can focus in on this first scene. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may eat freely of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. These verses give us the purpose for even being in the garden of all. And they also include the impetus by which this story develops. And Brueggemann finds three key concepts within this small passage. The first concept is this. God places the man in the garden and gives him freedom. You may freely eat. You've heard this quote before here, and you'll probably hear it over and over and over again as you continue to come to church here. But Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says that the free God desires the free worship of a free people. To understate it, freedom is a huge deal in the Bible. The foundational story of our biblical text is that of a God that takes his people out of slavery and leads them to freedom and to promise. The gospel message of Yeshua is again freedom from sin and death. This whole story begins with the free God creating Adam, humanity, placing Adam in the garden and giving Adam freedom. And the story ends in the book of Revelation again with freedom. Again, the people are found in a garden freely worshiping and in eternal union with the God that gave them that freedom. Our Bibles are bookended and filled throughout with stories of freedom and liberation. And all of these stories begin here in this garden. You may quickly notice, however, that this freedom is marked by a boundary. You may freely eat of every tree, but of this tree you shall not eat. Boundaries are the second concept that Brueggemann points out. All of the freedom that God gives, us, gives to us and desires for us means nothing if we're not also given the choice. A choice to disobey, a choice to eat of the fruit, a choice to say no. There must be a choice for us to have true freedom. And boundaries give us the option to break them. Theologian Doug King posits that before humanity broke this boundary... They were also without form and void, just as the cosmos were at the beginning of Genesis. What Doug is saying is that this boundary and the breaking of it are necessary for humanity to be able to differentiate itself from both God and from its surroundings. Immediately following this passage in the third scene, where God and Adam are seeking, or second scene, where God and Adam are seeking a suitable helper, Adam names the animals. This naming is a developmental process of self-differentiation that we still see in our toddlers today. Oliver is learning that he is Oliver and that cat and dog and cow and lion and mom and dad are not Oliver. He's coming to know that he is not them and they are not him. And according to Doug King, for Adam, this self-differentiation must even extend to God. Adam must know God as other and know himself as source. 
These creation narratives of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and 3 are at least in part in our Bibles to give the reader the sense that God is the source of all that we know. He's the source of the land that we live in, the seas that we swim in, the food that we eat. He's the source of the people that we love, and he's even the source of the very breath that we breathe. And what the writers of Genesis knew and what developmental psychologists know today is that in order to know unity with any other, whether it's another human or creation or God, one must first experience themselves as source and find the limitations of such living. Now, this isn't to say that every boundary is made to be broken. Healthy boundaries are good and used to facilitate development, to protect us, and to give us life in the fullest. But it is to say that some boundaries, or sometimes boundaries are violated. Sometimes boundaries are broken. And when these boundaries are broken, growth and depth and freedom and inclusion and this beautiful complexity that we call life is expanded. And so finally, we come to Brueggemann's third concept found in this passage. This last concept is vocation. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. To till it and keep it. God gives Adam, Adam, a purpose, a responsibility. In chapter 1, God used royal language to describe what Adam's, what humanity's relationship with the world would be. In this first chapter, the words are used to rule and to subdue it. But here in chapter 2, the language changes. Adam is to till it and keep it. The Hebrew words here are avad and shamar. And these are terms that describe the role of priests. They mean to serve and preserve to minister, and to protect. In this story, as Ellen Davis mentioned in the video at the top of the service, humanity is a gift to creation, intended to preserve and to protect and to serve and to bring it to its full health. The freedom that God gives to humanity and the boundaries that mark that freedom are given that Adam might fulfill this vocation. Humanity comes to know itself as a partner with God in cultivating this world into what is fully intended, a place that's meant for freedom and community and union. This Adam, this humanity, are the image bearers and the breath breathers of the God who is the source of all. The Bible has a lot of different ways to describe this relationship between humanity and God, And one of them, one of our favorites here at this church is that of children to a parent. Adam is son, and Adam is daughter to a divine parent. So this, this is my son, Oliver. He is pretty amazing. And he has these devilish good looks, doesn't he? And that's me at about the same age. You see where he gets those looks, right? (laughs) Oliver 
in a very, very real way, is made in my image, as I was made in the image of my parents before me. And Oliver, in a very real way, is also made in the image of his mother, as she was made in the image of her parents. We give Oliver more and more freedom. We allow him to explore the world, and we teach him to name that which is other. We give him boundaries, and some of those boundaries he must keep, but some of those boundaries are there just to facilitate his growth, his knowledge of who he is. We give him all of this because as he grows, he'll come to know that this garden called life belongs to him. We want him to feel purpose. We want him to come into this garden to till it and to keep it. We want him to cultivate relationships and care for the world around him. To come to know that ultimately he is in union with everything that he has called other. And Oliver will experience sin. And he will experience death. But what we want him to know is that as he experiences these things, his father is always with him. That the God who gave him life is still there, breathing life into him, breath after breath after breath. And each of you, each of you in a very, very real way were made in the image of our Divine Father. You were made in the image of our Divine Mother. And our divine parents give you freedom. He lets us explore this world. He teaches us to name that which is other. He gives us boundaries. And some of these boundaries we must keep. But others are there to facilitate our growth, to teach us more and more about who we are. He gives us this because as we grow, we come to know and learn that this garden that we called life belongs to us. He wants us to feel purpose. He wants us to come into this garden to till it and to keep it. He wants us to cultivate relationships, to care for the world around us, to come to know that ultimately we are in union with everything that we've called other. We'll experience sin will experience death. But he wants us to know that as we experience these things, our Father is always there. The God who gave us life will still be there breathing into us breath after breath after breath. Amen.